0: So I I always print out notes, and that's because I just believe in in, uh, encouraging people to be Berean. You know, which is not to take my word for it, but to actually give people the scriptures that I'm going to be teaching from and some of the main points. There's plenty that I'll say that are not here in the notes today, but I want to just give you the basic outline of what I'm preaching so that you can fold this up, put it in your Bible. And this week when you go to have your devotional time, maybe some of these thoughts will come back to you. Maybe there's uh, something that will be impressed upon your heart today that's especially a word for you. And you can go back into the scripture and study those things. And, uh, and I just encourage you to actually take time this week to do it. You know, I always want the teaching that I present to the body to be prophetic in nature, meaning I don't want to just come and share from my own wisdom or knowledge because you guys wouldn't get much out of that, I can tell you. <laughs> but the hope would be that, like Peter said, that when, when we preach, when we pray, when we minister, that we do it with the strength and the grace that God provides and we do it as living oracles of God. Amen. So would you guys just agree with me? I'm going to pray for a moment because I love prayer, and I believe that all the strength of what I would offer you today would come from God and come because we ask him to. So agree with me in prayer right now, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us words from heaven this morning. Yeah. Lord, I thank you, that the precious, the many precious promises of your word. And I thank you that there are several today that we're going to elucidate, that we're going to go deep in, that we're going to explore. And I ask, Father, that you would come behind my weak natural words as I often do, and that you communicate directly to people's hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the very word that you have for people to hear this morning would be spoken to them before they leave this place. The very regular word, Lord, the now word, the spirit-breathed word, would come to their hearts and to their minds and it would visit them from heaven. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you were the word made flesh and that you visited us from heaven, And that you've left, your, you've left your word, you've sustained your word through the Holy Scriptures and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that you've sustained your word in our midst, Lord, through these means of grace. And we just ask God this morning, let the word of God be rich. Let it dwell richly among us. Lord, as we fellowship together in spirit and as we read your word, I, I completely submit this time to you. I yield the entirety of this congregation and the time we have together to you, Holy Spirit. And I just ask you be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Arthur told me you guys typically go till about 1.30 in the afternoon. Is that right? He said just to, pr- to go about two hours. Usually I teach that. I'm just teasing you guys. I just wanted to see who would get panicked. A few people A few people were like, yeah, let's go for it. I can tell who's hungry. I saw it in your eyes when I said I was going to go to one. Day. I'm just teasing. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. At least Jonathan, my former intern. He likes my jokes. That's good. Appreciate that, Jonathan. Thank you for that support. I'll, I'll give you that Benjamin later, okay? <laughs> just keep the laughs coming. All right. But in all seriousness, the topic I want to talk about today, unity and intimacy, is one that's very dear to my heart. And just to give you a little context of what we feel like God's doing in our city, because I said I want the things I share to be prophetic, not just for this congregation, but, but what is God saying right now to the church? And people ask us that often um, at the International House of Prayer because they expect a praying people, hopefully we're hearing something from God, right, if anyone is. And rarely do I have something, honestly, that most of the time I'm just, you know, in my own heart, things for my family, things for our church. But rarely do I have something that I sense is, is a word for Atlanta, you know. But I just want to tell you today, and I think it will become evident as I unpack this. I feel right now that the word I'm going to share with you guys concerning unity and concerning unity and intimacy and the connection between those two things. And especially unity amongst the body of Christ and especially unity among, uh, among different ethnic, ethnicities, nationalities, and peoples. I think there's two kinds of unity that God's going after. One is bringing down the spirit of racism in our city. And one is going to bring down the spirit of dead religion in our city. And that those are two of the chief uh, spiritual forces of iniquity that are hindering the fullness of God in Atlanta. The fullness of the dream that God has for the church in our city. And I believe that there's a twofold remedy for the issue of racism and dead religion. And I believe it's this reconciliation and revival. And if we will pursue as a church in a spirit of oneness, a spirit of unity, reconciliation and revival, we're going to see an unprecedented glory visit the church in the city of Atlanta. I have given myself to since I graduated from college 12 years ago, I've given myself to the ministry of prayer on staff of the International House of Prayer now in my 11th year of ministry. Uh, I know that I don't look quite old enough to be in my 11th year of ministry but I'm uh, thank you thank you sister <laughs> but I'm 32 years old which was the year that Jesus was crucified so I don't know if that bodes well for me but it was also the year he was resurrected amen so <laughs> so I'm 32 years old I have four beautiful children six uh six about to be three, like two and a half, one and a half, and a newborn baby boy. So three in diapers uh, under the age of um, six and under. So yeah, you can pray for me and my wife. You can pray for my wife right now. Cause I'm at home on Sunday morning. Here to be with you guys. Um, and, you know, there's a verse that says we fill up we fill up the sufferings of, of what is lacking the sufferings of uh, of Christ. We fill that up in our body. My wife is experiencing that right now. She's suffering right now. I get to come and be treated so with all you nice people get to talk. But she right now is suffering for your sake, not having me at home. So but that's just a little bit about me I always like to share a little bit about me because you you know you just want to know who it is who's, who's talking with you and kind of what what this what I'm going to share this morning what the context of, of my experience that this is coming out of and so uh, like I was saying, people ask us as intercessors in the city, and someone's been praying for our city a long time. What is on the Lord's heart? And, and like I said, I do believe it is the bringing down of racial division, the bringing down of dead religion, and the church becoming one. And that's what Jesus died for. He literally allowed his body to be torn so that the body of Christ and the earth could become one. Amen. He, he, he literally he shed his blood, took a crown of thorns, took a disgrace and mockery so that the bride of Christ could be adorned with the righteousness that she's going to receive and that righteousness would give glory to him. So that's my little prophetic introduction and a little bit about me. Let's jump in to the notes because I want to talk about these two strains of unity and intimacy and how they go together. And, you know, a lot of times people misunderstand unity. They think, well, we're going to we're going to focus on unity, which means we're going to hold hands around the campfire and sing Kumbaya, my Lord. Right. And that that's what unity is. And there tends to be a kind of a a misappropriation of really what unity is um, that somehow we have to. We have to lose our distinctives that make us powerful and it's only around peripheral things that we can we can create unity. What are the areas of common ground? And sometimes that can be a superficial thing like, you know, I like this worship song and you like this worship song. So let's sing it together. And that's unity, you know, or uh, or, or, you know, it's people at a cocktail party. They meet together at a Sunday brunch and one of the first thing they look for the areas of common ground. You know, and when we you find your common ground, maybe we vacation at the same place, or we enjoy the same sports team, or we like the same kind of music. And these areas of common ground, it's like, okay, that's where people tend to find areas of agreement or unity. But when we get to the central things, the core things, there tends to be more disagreement. The things that really, uh, the things that are core to people's beliefs. But well, might have lost it. Turned off. Let's switch mics. Okay. Battery died on this one. Check, check, I'll just use this right here. I just might not get to move around as much. Um, but really, Christian unity shouldn't be built around not the peripheral things, but the central things, right? And the core place of unity should be that we fellowship together over the broken body and blood of Jesus, which is where we all come into covenant with God and with each other. Amen? And so unity becomes this powerful thing where at the core of our being, we come into one accord and we see in the book of Pentecost, what preceded the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it was unity, right? 2 Chronicles 7:14. if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, that whole passage on revival, pray, And turn from their wicked ways, I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. If you want to get to a place where God is healing the institutions of your society, the places of injustice and brokenness, then you first need to come as my people who are called by my name. My name, name, the Lord's name, but one people, right? And we see ultimately the great multitude of heaven, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. Revelation 5, they say worthy is the lamb who is slain because he's redeemed us to God from every tribe. Every tongue, every people, every nation under heaven. And he has made us a kingdom of priests. And so we, we see the multitude of heaven. They say, we are from every nation. We are from every kingdom. We are from every ethnic group. We are from every nationality. But we make those identities secondary to our primary identity, which is found in the Lamb. Hallelujah. And they worship him with one voice before the throne of God. Again, we see that in Revelation 7, that they are from every nation place every kingdom uh, uh, under heaven. And in Matthew 24, it says the gospel, I'm still not on the notes. I'm sorry, guys, we're still in prophetic introduction. (laughs) But in in Matthew 24, it says that truly Jesus is not going to allow the end to come until this gospel of the kingdom goes to every nation. Do You know why? Because he has created, it says in in, uh, Acts chapter 17, it says he's created every, uh, he's created every person from one blood. And of all the, all the descendants of Adam, all the, different, uh, all the different branches of that one family tree that can trace its roots all the way back to Adam, he doesn't want to leave one people group unrepresented in the kingdom of heaven. Because each people group, though very diverse, they each carry a unique expression of the glory of God. And there is a beautiful unity and diversity in the kingdom of heaven that is precious and glorious. So I say all that to say, man, unity is something that we see established in a heavenly reality. God says to pray on earth as it is in heaven. We know that God's will is that we would be one, but it's not a wimpy oneness. It's not a wimpy unity that's established on inconsequential things, but it's actually a unity that is brought about that begins in the spirit. Paul actually says we know each other, one another, by the Spirit first because, uh, because, you know, the flesh is secondary to the Spirit. The natural things are secondary to the Spirit. How many people have ever had that experience where you meet someone and you could, you know, I, I had this experience when I traveled to Brazil to a, a revival conference there. And I met the Brazilian believers and we had trouble communicating with each other. We had totally different cultures, but there was a resonance in my spirit that these people, though very different from me, they were family. Amen? Now, even sense that with us here today, you know, your church is different. My church has chairs. You guys have pews. We worship a little. We worship a little longer, maybe a little different. And, you know, there's there's things that are a little different, but mostly, you know, mostly our culture is the same. We don't even have that vast a culture of difference. I don't know you guys very well, but I can just tell, even in the worship, I can sense and discern your spirit and that we are one family. Amen. So what is the power that gets unlocked when we enter into unity and intimacy? Okay, now I'm ready. To begin the notes, I'm warmed up. So unity and intimacy, they're these two relational dynamics that Jesus greatly desires in his church. And Jesus has something, uh, John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. And this is the prayer that he prays on the night he's betrayed, right? And he intercedes that we would experience oneness with each other and the depths of his love. And I want to propose that if this was on the top of Jesus's prayer list, this should be on our prayer list as well. It should be one of the burdens we carry as we as we as a church intercede. And I want to set the table for us to enter into the prayer of Jesus and to experience transformation as we begin to relate to him and one another out of the depth of a new reality of unity and intimacy. See, because you, you may have come into this church may have come into this service today, maybe even tensions between uh, between maybe, I I don't know. I mean, there's always at our church, there's always, I don't know if this church is different, but always there's little tensions and disagreements. If you're close, even within my own family, it's like there's always little tensions and little disagreements, right? And we have to learn as a, as a family to work through those things with between my wife, my wife and my daughter and my kids. And, you know, how many people here, you don't, you don't have any tensions in your family? Okay, I don't see any hands going up. I'm assuming you guys are all telling me the truth, right? And so... The reality is maybe there's some that even exist here today, you know, and you're not coming into this service necessarily feeling particularly unified. I want to set a vision before you of how important it is to Jesus, to the heart of Jesus, that we prioritize unity over whatever our personal preferences or grievances might be. And that vision would actually compel us to respond to each other in humility and actually go, okay, it's more important for me to humble myself and say I'm sorry in this situation than for us to live in disagreement. And you know some people find themselves in disagreement, and that disagreement gets exacerbated, and they don't end up talking. Some family members don't end up talking to each other for decades, right? Churches split. And divide over little grievances, things that begin as little grievances and then become a a larger irritant and then become infected with the poison of bitterness and offense. And it's far too common in the church, right? I mean, we all know about church splits and we seldom hear about churches coming together. (laughs) And that's because, you know, the, the enemy has a real strategy to divide and conquer. So again, all true prayer begins out of the revelation of what God desires. And it's when we understand what God wants and agree with him that it would be done, that the unimaginable power of prayer is released. And this may seem simple, but many of us, we spend more time praying to God about what we want than asking him what he wants and agreeing with him for that in the earth, right? And I'm not suggesting that what we want doesn't matter because I believe God wants to to talk to us about our desires. But oftentimes we let that conversation evolve in a very one-sided way. And oftentimes the main thing, especially when you're younger, and I understand this because this is how my kids are, my kids don't talk to me yet about, Dad, what do you want me to do? My six-year-old starting to get there. But my, ba- my babies, they, this morning, man, my wife made me, I'll just share just a little picture of this, right? And this is how we are sometimes with God. I have you know, the one-and-a-half-year-old and the two-and-a-half-year-old. And uh, they're just the cutest little things. But my wife fixed me the best breakfast. And, uh, who loves cheese grits? Man, I had this bowl of cheese grits this morning and some ham. And my wife made his quiche with onion. Oh, man, it was good. And so, but I started eating my breakfast, and my two babies descended upon me like little birds. And one sat on my right side, and the other sat on my left. And I would feed one and feed the other. And before long, half my food was. Half my food was gobbled up by these little – and they weren't going, Dad, are you feeding yourself? They weren't concerned with that. They just knew that smells good. That tastes good. And the one and a half ago, go, I would, I would feed her, and then I would go to like try and take a bite, and she would go, ah! Because <laughs> she wanted some more of those cheese grits. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about when we're babes in Christ, that's a lot like what our prayer life is. Things get tough. We go. God help. I need to pay this bill, or this person's not being nice to me at work, or I don't understand what's going on to me. The enemy's harassing me. My life feels things got. I became a Christian. Things got harder. You know, what's going on, Lord? And He goes, Well, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus still suffer persecution. Right? And he reminds of these verses. They hated me, so the world will hate you. Right? And so you got you got born into a family, but you also got born into a war zone. <laughs> And you you got born into an army. You got born in a family first, but you also got born into an army. And, you know, a lot of people don't sit down and explain that to you when they say, hey, here, pray this prayer and submit to you. They just go, hey, everything in your life, he knows the plans to have you, prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. And you don't realize that that verse, the entire nation was in desolation when God promised that to them. So anyway, I say all that to say this. Early on in our walk with God, that conversation can be one-sided, right? But the desire of God's heart, when his disciples said, teach us to pray, the very first thing that God said is first pray to your father in heaven and then pray that his will would be done. The the whole process of discerning and growing in prayer, it actually doesn't just, it begins first relationally with God as a father. But then it begins, the the true definition of sonship is that we begin to put the will, we grow to a place where we begin to put the will of the father above our own desires. And what's amazing about Jesus is he didn't just teach it in the prayer seminar. But when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the greatest moment of testing and trial in his entire life, he applies the principle that he taught them in the prayer class. He says, Father, and he prays the exact same thing, not my will, but your will be done. Don't you love Jesus that he practices what he preaches? And in that moment of great trial, it would have been the key moment to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pray what I want. He goes, he acknowledges, God, this is what I want, but I put what you want above what I want. And we see this. Now, again, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about what we desire. I believe it's actually as we bring our desires to him, he does a transforming work in our life. And he shapes and works in our desires so that our desires, the way we pray them, are just the way that That God can answer, and He changes our desires, you know? and so John fifteen seven, it's a a great example, and and first John five fourteen says, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, right? And so if you want God to hear your prayers, find what God wants to do in the word of God, and what God wants to do in your city and begin to pray that. And we are assured by scripture that those are the prayers that he'll answer. But then secondly, John 15, 7, he also says when our, his word is abiding in us and when we're abiding in the word of God, we can ask what we desire and it shall be done for you. So this was the prayer life that Jesus modeled. But John 17, 24, again, this is the night, the very same night that he prays, Lord your will be done, not my will, but your will be done. But he also comes at that very same night, a different time of prayer, where he's praying this high priestly prayer, and he says, Father, I desire, right, that they would be with me where I am. And so we see even within Jesus, right, there were competing desires. He goes, I want a people, but then he goes, oh, the suffering that I'll have to go through to possess them, and these two things are intention, and he submits his will to the will of the Father, rather than, and in doing so, you know, what Adam did was Adam said, I'm going to grasp and take for myself. I'm going to do my own will, rather than your will, God. But Jesus, in a garden, thousands of years later, became the second Adam by in that garden submitting his will to the Father instead of taking the fruit of his own wisdom. And so with Jesus, he submits his will to the Father. But again, that, this idea that Jesus, and it's those things, our desire and God's will, they're reconciled as we kneel before him in the place of humble submission and prayer. So when Jesus prayed for the church throughout all generations, what was his primary request? What was the primary thing that he asked for? John 17, 20. And this is just such an amazing passage because you can insert your name right there. We're on page two, John 17, 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is where you and I are directly inserted into the scripture, right? Just shout out a few names for me. What are a few names of uh, the folks here in the congregation? Man, your name right there with the, the glasses on? Odessa. Odessa, that's a beautiful name. Odessa. Right here. I do not pray for these alone, but I pray for Odessa. Amen. Right? I do not pray for these alone. Jonathan right here. I pray, for, I pray for Jonathan. You can just insert your name right there. Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, he's thinking of you and I. Thousands of years later, the ones who would believe in him because of the words of his apostles. Right? And when he prays for them, when he prays for you and I, when he prays for Odessa and prays for Jonathan, prays for Hazen. Here's the very first thing he prays for them. And so wouldn't you think whatever he's about to pray, it's pretty important because he's praying it for the entire church throughout the generations, right? So what does he pray? That they all may be one. Wow. (laughs) That's a heavy revy right there, right? A serious revelation. There's a lot of things that could have been the very first thing Jesus prayed. But what he prayed is that we would be one. And this is not just a oneness again like the kumbaya around the campfire oneness. He says, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. What kind of unity exists within the Trinity? And he goes, the unity that exists within the Trinity, the oneness of purpose and mind and heart, I mean, there is no separation. They are so united that they are one person, you know. The, uh, the ancient Hebrew statement, behold, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one, right? But the great mystery of the Trinity is that while being simultaneously one, he is three. Even as we see in Genesis 1, he said he's speaks to someone and says let us make let us make god in our Im- uh, let us make man in our image right so even from genesis 1 there is a plurality <laughs> within the oneness of the, and it expresses to and points to this mystery of the trinity what an amazing what an amazing mind blowing concept and how many of you believe that jesus the very things that jesus prayed according to the will of the father he didn't just pray them and god didn't answer right The things that Jesus prayed, Jesus got. Amen? So when Jesus prays in John 17, that's not just prayer, that's prophecy. The very thing that Jesus is asking for, the Father will do in fullness before the end, before Jesus comes. Jesus is coming for a united bride. A bride that is one, even as he and the Father are one. And though there's so much denominationalism and division and separation within the body, I believe God, as we pray and we join our prayers with the high Priestly prayer of Jesus, as we do that, he's going to bring down those divisions and those separations. And literally, as we come into unity, there's going to be a greater glory. They also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you've given me, I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they be, be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I just wanna encourage you, Arthur said you guys are taking some time on Wednesday nights for prayer, prayer reading the scripture. I didn't know what passage you were on, but I told him the other night, he said, you yeah, know, what are you gonna share? And I said, well, I just am feeling John 17 for your church. And he goes, woo! <laughs> he got excited. Because he said, we've been prayer reading John 17 the last few weeks. And I just encourage you just to take this past, I think this is a a word for this congregation uh, to to go deep in understanding, meditating on these verses. So Jesus asks four times in these two verses that we would be one and that this unity would be the same unity that exists within the Trinity. In the Bible often uh, repetition indicates significance And Jesus' request is not simply unity characterized by agreement, as I mentioned earlier about peripheral things, but the very oneness that would exist between he and his Father. And then he takes it a step further, and he says that this oneness will be a witness to the world that the Father loves us, even as it loves Jesus. Now, I love John 17. Theologians call it the inner Trinitarian dialogue. Because we get a unique glimpse. There's only a few other places we see this. John 17 is the longest. We literally get to see one person of the Trinity talking to another person of the Trinity. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. And what is it that Jesus is conversating with the Father about? He's talking in this portion about us, about Odessa, about Jonathan, about myself, about each one of us here. And he's talking about us. And then he says, Father, this is my desire that the world would know that your love, the same love you have for me, you have it for your church. This is an amazing thought. Picture yourself and Jesus standing before the throne of Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, the one who, literally, Isaiah 40 says he speaks, calls forth the starry hosts by name, and not one of them is missed—not one star, or galaxy. Not one atom of our bodies is unknown to him. And uh, he, he is completely aware. He is the creator of it all. And should he choose to cease to sustain it, it would all diminish into nothing, right? This is the God that we're talking about. And we're standing before his holiness and his transcendence. And then there is his son incarnate in the flesh, perfect and holy. And then there's you next to Jesus, Right? I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you looked around and you go, how did I end up here, you know? But I think we would have an overwhelming sensation, you know, like Isaiah did if we were to stand in that position. God, I'm a person of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. And my eyes are seen King. Mercy, God. Because of our unworthiness in and of ourselves, right? But... Once, you know, you get scraped up off the ground or whatever in the presence of God's transcendent holiness, you would realize that there is an emotion that is emanating from this transcendent holy being. And that in fact, though you feel that you do not belong there, strangely, you do. You do belong there. says you can come boldly to the throne of grace and ask for help in your time of need. You belong before that throne. because of the perfect reconciling blood of his son and the power of the Holy Spirit that he has put within you. And that, that acceptance and love that emanates from that transcendent holy being, that is that movement of his heart towards his own precious son, that exact same emotion comes to you. I told you about my two children earlier. And, you know, each child is unique. But what's amazing, and it's been such an incredible thing that I've added, you know, four, had four kids pretty fast. Right? I don't know if any parents in here can relate to this. But you have one and you love them so much, and there's a little nervousness when you're about to add number two. Can I love number two as much as I love number one? Has anybody ever thought that as a parent, had that question? You know, am I gonna be able to sacrifice for number two? Like, and then you go, you love number one, and you love number two, and you're like, am I gonna is my capacity love gonna increase with number three? And then you add number three, you love them as much as one and two, they're completely different love the things about. And then you add number four, and you're like, man, with each little baby, you know, the trouble increases, the hassle increases, the challenges increase, but the love, the sacrificial love increases all the more with each and every one, right? And if that's true of us as weak human beings, broken yet in the image of God, how much more is it true of our Heavenly Father, who has limitless capacity to love, and His love is in no way inferior to the very love that He has for His Son, I have Kessin and Pearl. I was telling you about them, how they descended on my breakfast, right? I'm feeding them. And my wife goes, yo, don't feed them all your breakfast. I said, I can't help it." They're so adorable. <laughs> right? And the love that I have for Kesson, my middle girl, and the love that I have for Pearl, my youngest girl, I mean, the, the, the quality and the quantity of love is indistinguishable between the two of them. And it is just a mind-blowing thought That you have been brought into unity with Christ in your spirit, so much so that God's unconditional love and acceptance for you, when you stand before him and ask, his love towards you is indistinguishable from his love towards Jesus. You are accepted in the love of God in the same manner that Jesus is accepted in the love of God, and that is unmerited. You cannot work for it. You cannot strive for it. You cannot achieve it. You cannot obey enough for it. It is simply because you are his. You're his. That's the only reason. And you may mess up, but do you know what the love of God does? The love of God covers a multitude of sins. So that with a heart of repentance, you come to him, you go, Daddy, I I messed up again. He goes, sorry, I'm with you in this. I love you. I'm fighting for you. You are mine. You're no longer a slave to the law. You've been set free by the Spirit of grace, and you can call to me now. Abba, Father. Abba, Abba Father. Number one p- reason people don't pray, I'll tell you this. Number one people, reason people don't pray is they have a wrong view of God as Father. But when you begin to view God rightly, man, you're going to get fired up to come before that throne of grace. But the enemy wants to accuse us, to make us think you don't belong there, you're disqualified, God doesn't hear your prayers, He doesn't care about you, He doesn't care about the things you care about. But if you have a view that God cares about you as a father in the same manner that he cares about Jesus, and there's the verse right there, and it says it again also at the end of John 17. If we will understand the depth of the love of Almighty God for us, there will be nothing that can keep you away from that throne. Because you are welcomed there as a child of God. Hallelujah. Now what's amazing though is this idea that God is, Jesus is praying to the Father for oneness, but the process of oneness has everything to do with intimacy. As any of us who understand marriage, we get that, right? That the process of marriage is actually the biblical process of marriage we covenant together and then two become one, right? And the expression, the inflow and the outflow of that oneness is intimacy, right? And so the foundation of our oneness in Christ is intimacy with Christ. A giving and a receiving of love. And so similarly, unity within the body must be established in love and in intimacy with one another. You honestly can't tell me that you love me if you do not know me. And so much of the division and lack of racial reconciliation in our church is simply because the enemy has kept us apart from one another for far too long. And so if we will come into relationship and intimacy with one another, unity is a natural outworking of intimacy. And so, and ultimately, if you, if you use the expression of oneness, oneness is the consummation, if you will, of intimacy. Correct? Because you can't get... If I got closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, I'm not going to do it to you, sir. (laughs) If I got closer and closer and closer to my brother here, we could get as close as we physically could. But then eventually, eventually we get as close as we physically could. We couldn't get any closer because our physical body would keep us apart, right? But in the spirit realm, it doesn't work that way. You know? And there's no physical boundary in the spirit. We can actually become one. I'm not talking about any kind of weird New Age mysticism. I'm talking about biblical truth. That when we have oneness of purpose, oneness of heart, right, though we may be separated physically by space and difference and culture and variety of different things, then there is no greater greater intimacy or closeness that you can share than oneness. And when you begin to think of unity as the very definition of oneness and intimacy, you see the power and the potency and why the Bible emphasizes again and again the importance of us becoming one. Because when we grow as intimate as we possibly can, then the eventual end result of that intimacy is that there is no discernible separation between us. And when we are united in that way, our power in the spirit is multiplied. Amen. So consider this point F, how united is the Trinity in heart, mind and singleness of purpose? And Jesus prays for us to experience that same oneness with the Trinity and each other. What would the church be like if we shared this unity with one another and with the Godhead? How would the world be changed? Jesus declares that our unity would unlock the world's ability to believe. In contrast, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He uses the sowing of unforgiveness as a chief strategy to divide and conquer. 2 Corinthians 2.10, Paul brings attention to the, he highlights uh, the enemy's counter strategy. He goes, anyone that you Corinthians have forgiven, I also forgive. For indeed, if I have forgiven anything, I've forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So what's he saying? He's going, I'm not holding. There had been a lot of people that had come through Corinth that had spoken out against Paul and that had wronged Paul. And Paul's going, if you've forgiven them, I've forgiven them. I don't even need to know the situation. He goes, I've resolved to forgive them because I realize this. If I don't forgive them, Satan is going to take advantage of that. And he goes, if there's unforgiveness or bitterness in my heart in Ephesians, he says, don't let your son, the sun go down on your anger. Then he goes, if, if, uh, if, if I allow unforgiveness to remain in my heart, the going to take advantage of that. And we're not ignorant of his devices, of his schemes, right? Well, I think what Paul was aware of, some of us are far too unaware of. That sometimes that accusation in your heart towards your brother and sister or that accusation in your heart towards God. Is actually uh, something that's coming to you from the spiritual realm. And that those accusations that we have against each other, uh, that we have against God, it's actually a scheme of the evil one. But I want to tell you again, as we say, if Jesus, the first thing he prays is that we would be one, then the first place the enemy is going to attack is our unity. And so intimacy, it's the strategy that unlocks oneness among us. Jesus prays, I and them, you and me, they may be made perfect in one. And this oneness will reveal to the world that Jesus was truly divine in origin and testify to the depth of love that exists in the Father's heart for humanity. When the world sees a unity among the church that is devoid of anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred, selfishness, but instead sees it full of love for God and one another, they will recognize Jesus is the Son of God. Colossians 3.13, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. You could substitute the word there, unity. So I just want to challenge us today. Where do we begin to actually practically apply this? We recognize, okay, Jesus prayed that we would be one. All right, I see the oneness it derives from a heart of intimacy, and so we must know each other and relate to each other in an increasingly intimate way you truly want. The enemy's schemes are to separate and to divide us and to cause bitterness and hatred and anger. And so the strategy, if we truly want to make this, very, this whole lesson very practical, besides beginning to pray for oneness and unity and to pray for the cohesiveness of your church, the other practical strategy is that you would forgive everyone that wrongs you. And once again, I love how Jesus, he doesn't just say, forgive them and then not model it. But literally, with nails driven through his hands and spikes driven through his feet, a crown of thorns upon his head, beaten, bruised, bloodied, raped with a cat on nine tails, the Son of God, holy and perfect, dying for the sins of humanity upon the cross. And evil men, selfish men, who knew he was innocent, murdered him. There was no confusion in the heart of the Pharisees or the Romans concerning what they were doing. The one who crucified him looks at him and says, truly, this man was the son of God. So they recognized that there was something distinct. And the holy, Pontius Pilate said, I want to wash my hands of the blood of this man because he knew he was innocent. But yet he did not intervene. And the very ones that crucified Jesus unjustly, Jesus looks upon them and says, Father, forgive them for they know not. See, he didn't just say, oh, I'm going to pray for one minute." He actually did, it. with his body and his blood, he removed all the barriers for you and I to have unity. And then he modeled a very practical thing. Literally, as, I mean, it's a, 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 the price that Jesus paid for us to be one was that at that moment the Father forsook him. The unity that existed within the Trinity since eternity passed, for the briefest of times, it appears, if you I, I believe that in taking on the sins of humanity, Jesus, for the first time ever in all of human history, experienced the turning away of the Father as he became sin for us. And ultimately, that work upon the cross was so that we could, the Father turned away for Jesus so that he could turn towards us. And that the Father, the Father uh, allowed separation to happen so we could be welcomed into the Trinity and welcomed into reconciliation with one another. So if we're reconciled to God, now we can be reconciled to our fellow men. If we're forgiven by God, we can unequivocally forgive everyone who has wronged us. And that's what Paul says. Remember the Lord forgave you. So it doesn't say you can forgive others, does it? It doesn't say, so if you desire to, you can forgive others. It says, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive. And I love Paul in his teaching. He doesn't only tell us um, how to forsake the wrong thing, but he says, now embrace the right thing. He doesn't just give us the works of the flesh that we're to reject, but he also, in Galatians 5, gives us the fruits of the spirit that we're to embrace. And in like manner, above all else, Clothe yourself with love, which binds us together in unity. So not only do we forgive our enemies, but we put on love towards our enemies, right? And so demonstrate ourselves to be children of our Heavenly Father. So have you loved, church, have you loved your enemy today? Have you forgiven the ones that wrong you? It doesn't get more practical than that. And so upon the church, right, I'll close with this, and this will be my benediction for you all. Psalm 133, God's been speaking powerfully to this, uh, from this verse for me. And then I'm going to give a little little time of invitation. But um, Psalm 133, I just want to read it and then highlight a few thoughts. Psalm 133, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in, in unity or harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that's poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard onto the borders of his robe. Unity is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, life forevermore, or life everlasting. So this psalm, Psalm 133, it says where brethren dwell together in unity, and it gives two metaphors. It says it's like an oil poured upon the head of a priest. It's like dew upon the mountains that brings refreshing. And I was singing uh, prophetically this week in a, a worship set, and the Holy Spirit just brought this thought to me. What is a priest without oil? In that time, it was the oil that consecrated and made holy and prepared them for ministry and for service. What is an unconsecrated priest? The mountains in that time were dry and barren, and there was no vegetation on them until the dew of heaven came and allowed life and growth to come forth. The mountains without the dew are barren and rocky and unhospitable. A priest without oil is unprepared for service. What is a priest without oil and what are the mountains without the dew? That's what the church is like if we're divided. In the absence of unity, we're like priests without any oil. In the absence of unity, we're like mountains without the dew. But where we are united, it says God pronounces, other versions say he commands his blessing life forevermore. And I believe it's because unity is not some peripheral side issue just for those who have a heart to do reconciliation ministry. Unity is central to the plan of Jesus to bring forth a beautiful bride in the earth from every tribe, tongue, people, and language, and nation. And when we all, with one voice, say, worthy is the Lamb, united in heart and in purpose, there's going to be a glory and a love that will be evident to all the world. Literally, we will be burning and shining lights in the midst of a crooked crooked and wicked generation because of our love and forgiveness and oneness that we have in Christ. And it's there that the Lord will command his blessing upon us. Think about that brother or sister that you harbor unforgiveness or offense towards in your heart. And just think about the billions of years you're going to live together in that heavenly city. Why don't we just go ahead and get on with, with living in a heavenly reality now. Instead of harboring these petty grievances towards one another. Because you. you're going to get to see that person every day for all eternity. Right? Let's not go to to our graves because of some petty offense. Let's forgive in the same manner that Jesus Christ forgave us. Whether it's a people group that's wronged you, whether it's a family member that's wronged you, whether it's a brother or sister in Christ that's wronged you, whether it's an enemy that has intentionally sought you harm, the command of God is to forgive and to bless and do more than forgive and bless, to love. And for those that are your brothers and sisters in Christ, to pursue oneness with them. The ultimate expression of a people of intimacy. Let's stand together and pray. Father, I thank you for the commanded blessing that comes upon your church when we dwell in unity. And I just want to invite us to just come together all across this room and, and just do a simple physical act. I just want us to just link hands across the pews. Just, uh, yeah, if we, if we can just even step out into the aisle and just kind of just all come together and just link hands. Not everybody doesn't have to. We don't form a circle or anything. Let's link hands. You know, sometimes we get on our knees and it's a way that we humble ourselves, right? And sometimes, we, um, and sometimes we lift our hands It's a way to express praise. And what I find is that when we reach across the aisle and we take our hand, take the hand of our brother or sister, it does something in our heart to tell us, truly, I'm one with this person. And even in this moment right now, God, I pray for this church. Look, I pray for this church that every place of unforgiveness, every place of hidden resentment, every place of bitterness, every place of divisiveness, look, uh, subtle, small places, look, even as it said in the Song of Solomon, catch the foxes that spoil the vineyard. Get those little things out of our lives, God, that keep us from walking in the fullness of what you intend for us. And God, we pray as we enter into forgiveness. As we enter into releasing our grievances, Lord, we pray, Father, we commit to pray, God, for the oneness of your church, for the unity of your bride. And we ask, Father, as we come into one accord, God, we ask that you would release the fires of Pentecost afresh upon your church, Lord. That as we cry out and we pray, as it says in Acts chapter 4, Lord, that they lifted their voice in one accord. As it says in Acts chapter 2, they were gathered in one place together in one accord. Lord, we pray as we come into one accord, let the churches where we assemble together be shaken and let all be filled again with the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for this congregation, Lord, from many nations, from many backgrounds. Lord, I thank you that they are one in Christ. I pray that heavenly reality would come down in the spirit of revelation. Would the spirit of love and unity would begin to uh, be pregnant in each one of their hearts, giving birth to a greater oneness, a greater intimacy. I pray they would be supercharged by the power of the Holy Spirit with the love of God for one another. That then they see each other, they would see one another with the eyes of the Father. And that as they look at each other, the love that flows in the heart of the Father for them, it would flow in them for one another and that they would be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. Even as you, Jesus, are one with your Father and one with the Holy Spirit, I ask that they would be one with each other and one with you. God, release that oneness right now in Jesus' name. Release that intimacy, Lord, of what it means to be your son and your daughter and your bride. I want to close with this benediction. And I just command this blessing over you. I declare you are one family. I declare you are one body. I declare that you are one bride. I declare that you are the possession of Christ in the earth. You are possession of your heavenly father. And that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. With living stones, not made with human hands. And that your unity is a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. And Romans fifteen five, May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another. According to Christ Jesus. That with one mind and one mouth you would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would receive one another. Even as Jesus Christ has received you. Romans 15, 5-7. through seven. I bless you with that. Today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. amen.